Good morning. I want to speak to you about living in Babylon. These instructions from the Lord through Jeremiah that God gives to his people while they're in captivity. And it's, it's hard for us to kind of imagine their state of mind. I mean, they're, they've gotten to this place, this foreign land, by their disobedience. And these are dark days for them. They're not at home. They're prisoners in a foreign place. And, and again, this is pretty unimaginable for us. I mean, maybe if we imagine being captured from your home in Tulsa and uh, taken to Iceland or something just, and put in prison camps, right? You no longer have your home, your stuff, your job. There's a new language to learn, a new culture to try to understand. And when God speaks to them, after they're in Babylon, which he had warned them about, it was going to happen repeatedly, and which they did not heed the warning. He doesn't say through Jeremiah, I I warned you guys about this, you idiots. He doesn't say that. He actually speaks with hope. Um, I love that. Because even when you're on the backside of things, if you're on, as the the song said, and as uh, Father Paul alluded to, even when we make our bed, Isaiah, our Psalm 139 says, if we make our bed in hell, even there God's with us. And there's hope. And here in the midst of Babylon, in the midst of deep loss, he speaks to his people, God speaks to his people with hope. And his, base, his message is basically, you're going to be okay. And this isn't the best situation, but you're going to be okay. So make do. Live well as Jews. And he tells them, build and plant and marry and have babies and increase. Then he actually says, pray for the good of this place that isn't, doesn't seem to be so good. Because as it prospers, you will prosper, right? Now, the Jews weren't necessarily happy about this all the time. We have different prayers that emerge, one of the psalms that emerge while they're in Babylon. And this is the prayer. You can hear a little bit of the angst in their souls. This is Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept when we remembered home, when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked for us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing for us some of those songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I don't remember you, if I don't consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. They weren't happy. But they were at least being honest about their anger and honest about their angst. I think most of the time we repress it and it comes out in other ways. But God, in our text in Jeremiah, was calling them to a higher way of viewing the situation. Not just the reaction to Babylon, not just the hope for revenge and freedom. 
He was asking them to look at it in a different way, a more nuanced view. Now, we know from science that as the human race became human, God guided a process, some think over millions of years. And the human brain went through these various iterations. An oversimplified way to talk about the modern human brain is it has basically these three segments. The lowest and the most basic part of your brain is it's like the lizard brain. Uh, since I only had one semester of anatomy, physiology in, cl- in college, I'm using the more generalized scientific terms like lizard brain. <laughs> this is a place that drives our appetites, right? This is the place that our fears get enraged. This is the place where aggressiveness comes out of us. It's that part of us. A little higher part of the brain, the middle brain, controls and manages emotions and feelings but it sometimes can be in control just by emotions or feelings. But the highest top of our brain, the high part, the top part, deals with reasoning and higher functions of thought. If we're not careful, if we don't live examined lives, we will be driven by our lizard brain. In other words, our lives will just be a reaction based on our sense of safety, our sense of danger, uh, or will approach life dualistically is how you can think about it. In other words, things are either completely good or completely bad. There's just no different. There's no in-between. They're, either we're totally happy or we're dreadfully sad. Either something is wonderful or from the land of the sock. Right? We just, they're just, you know, like that. Just black or white. Nothing nuanced. Fundamentalism lives here. Racism lives here. Polarized cultures live here. The great ways we've been divided in our culture, in America, politically, morally, ethically, over the past couple of decades is evidence of our descent into lizardry. Here in Jeremiah, God is calling Israel to a higher functioning way of thinking. God is saying to them, sure, captivity is bad. But goods can still be found, even in the midst of bad. You're alive. Be thankful that you're alive. This goes to our gospel reading where the, remember the, the men that were healed of their leprosy, they, no of, none of them came back to give thanks. I mean, a miracle, and none of them came back to give thanks except the Samaritan, who wasn't a local guy was the only one that came back to give thanks. Why? Because human beings do not naturally careen toward thanksgiving, even when everything's going well, much less if you're in Babylon. But God is saying, be thankful. He, in essence, is saying, hey, lower your expectations a little bit. Babylon is not going to be Israel. But that's okay. You can still thrive. You can build and plant and have kids and increase and see prosperity in the land. And that God has not forsaken you, even when you're in Babylon, even when you're on the back end of something horrible, something as a result of your stupid choices. Even there, God does not forsake us. So he says, pray for the prosperity of Babylon. Pray for prosperity in the midst of the dark place. God will begin to turn things. We get that famous text many of you have probably heard before. Right in the midst of this 
This business of being right smack in Babylon. This is that famous text in Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. He's talking about while they're in Babylon, while they're in this this place of judgment. He says, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. He sets it up, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. There's always hope. But God is saying in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the loss, in the midst of a disorienting place that isn't home, look for the good. What God is saying to them is to embrace a more nuanced view of the situation that allows for the presence of both good and bad in the same space, for happy and sad in the same space, for right and wrong in the same space. The lizard brain can't do that. The lower function of our brain see what it perceives as evil, and it wants either to change it violently if necessary or run from it. The guiding principle of lower thinking is separation or exclusion. The higher thinking tends to be inclusive, embracing all that's around it. Higher thinking is not just done in black and white. It thinks in shades of color and shades of gray. Circumstances and people are not just good or evil, right or wrong, The higher consciousness looks for how seemingly contradictory things can exist in the same space, in the same scenario. And things like patience and hope and faith become governing principles when you live in a higher kind of understanding and a higher usage of your thinking. There's a story in Matthew 12 where you see the lizard people and the nuanced person, Jesus, address an issue. This is, uh, it says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the, when the Pharisees saw this, they said out of their lizard brains, look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. Just mad, right? And Jesus answered, watch his answer. Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He knew they were hungry. They weren't really paying attention to what they were doing, knuckleheads. They were doing something that was wrong, but they were hungry. See, Jesus always looked deeper, not just to what was there on the surface. See, the thinking that looks below the surface for more nuanced understanding is what God is calling Israel to do in our text. It's a way of looking at things that adds depth to one's humanity. The lizard brain only looks shallowly and it leads to treating people and situations that are not perfect with disgust and judgment. A person living out of their higher thinking, they see bad situations or they see people that appear to be doing bad things and though they're honest that the stuff is bad, it's not like they're pretending it's not. They, They express hope. They express faith that things can change because hope and faith demand higher thinking activity. You'll never operate there unless you do. So what does that mean for us? Well, first, I think we should recognize that we live in Babylon as well. 
right? I mean, some have historically claimed America is the new Israel. In God's economy of thought, you can think that, but I don't think there is any, not even some, evidence that that is true. Here's what's true, I think. 1 Peter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I I think God is saying to us, sure, you are foreigners and exiles in the world and that is bad, but you're alive. Be thankful. All may not be well, but there's much to give thanks for. Lower your expectations. America is not going to be Israel. Nor is it one nation under God. It's probably a nation under a bunch of gods. You do understand that that was written under God in 1954 in response to communism, so it is like you're attacking the father of the nation. But you can still thrive even if it isn't. And God has not forsaken us, even though we lived in a foreign land in that sense. We should make do. We should live well as Christians. We should build, plant, marry, and pray for the good of Babylonian America. Okay, a couple of secrets about living and surviving in Babylon, all right? We get both of these from Daniel. The book of Daniel, they were the ones that were in Babylon, we actually get a, if you read the book of Daniel, you'll get a snapshot of what life in Babylon was like. And so here we have Daniel, these three Hebrew boys in the book of Daniel. And secret, I want to give you two secrets. Secret number one is if you're going to survive and live well in Babylon, you've got to embrace some spiritual discipline or disciplines that are completely inconvenient to you and that will mess with you, Okay. So here's the story. This is chapter 1-1 of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Joachim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Joachim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, sounds like American thing, a showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So they put the cream of the cream, right? Cream of the cream. The king, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. So they were supposed to be immersed in Babylonian thought. The king assigned them to a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. So the best of the best. They were to be trained for three years and after that enter into the king's service. Well, among those that were chosen were from some of them from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he became Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah, Shadrach, that's how we usually know these guys, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. But watch. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. He's choosing to do something different than what was normal. And it had to do with his food. Don't mess with my food. 
I mean, I'm like a foodie guy, right? I mean, it's like eating, eating food that isn't necessarily what I want to eat messes with me. It sort of stays on me like a chicken on a June bug. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion on Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king who has assigned me, assigned your food and drink. Why should he see that you're looking worse than the other men of your age? The king would have my head because of you. So Daniel said to the guard whom the official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test us for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables and to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So the guy agreed, test them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, these guys, these kids, these Hebrew kids, looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine, and they were given, uh, they were, uh, they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So here are these teenage boys eating vegetables. Go ahead and try to do that with your kids. New deal, veggies only. These four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. In other words, he gave them the ability to learn Babylonian world. Public school. Hmm. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time, set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, and the king talked with him, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians. These are pagan weird people doing weird things. Having incantations, these enchanters. I mean, he found them better than ten, ten times better than those Jews that knew all those weird liturgies. And they knew them. They knew them better, ten times better. Huh. These four Hebrew boys were asked to major in the language and the literature, the religion of the, the Babylonians. They were to immerse in the Babylonian culture with its magic and its enchantments and all this uber pagan weird stuff that I am sure involves severed horse heads and other creepy things. <laughs> and then they were to go into the king's service. The king wanted them to be Babylonians. And they didn't resist the education. All they said was, we don't want to do this kind of eating. We, we want to eat differently. We want to not defile ourselves in this way. We want to be different in an odd way. They were okay about learning about Babylon and about being in Babylon, but they were not okay with Babylon being in them. They were Jews. So they agreed to learn the culture, the religion, the ways of Babylon, but they didn't agree to become Babylonian. And the way their secret was embracing this spiritual discipline that was completely inconvenient and messed with them consistently fasting. Things like fasting get all over you. Just wait till Lent. It's a love-hate thing. Fasting hangs over you, stays with you. It reminds you through this pervasive presence of a longing for something you can't have 
It reminds you, even though there's, of who you are, even though there's other things trying to distract you, it's reminding you more than the distraction is grabbing you. This helped them master Babylonian life without being mastered by Babylonian life. I, I actually love Christian schools. I do, and, and uh, homeschooling, all that kind of stuff. But, but if you don't get to do that, if your kids can't do that, if it's too costly, whatever, you can stay faithful to God if you know how to survive Babylon. You just have to grab something that will help you stay tethered. The text, these kids ended up being 10 times better than all these magicians and enchanters. In other words, they remained Jews. If you are going to remain faithful to Jesus in our American Babylon, you had better find some things to practice that get all over you. It could be fasting. It could be adhering to the church calendar that seems a little obtuse to you. It could be doing things like the daily office of prayer. Something that's a little invasive, a little, you know, you're kind of going, okay, and you yield to it, even though you don't want to do it. Uh, a church attendance can be like that, just be a consistent church attender, or a refusal to be a party animal. Or whatever has the capacity to grab you by the neck, and is too present in your life for you to ignore, do that, and let it point you back to the fact that you're an alien and a stranger in a world that you don't belong completely to. Second secret to survive in Babylon is be okay with being odd. Don't try to fit in all the way. A little bit of fitting in is okay. If you're too weird, don't be too weird. You know what I mean? Just right? I mean, a little coolness is cool, but too much coolness is not cool. Think of how odd it was for those young men to eat just veggies and drink water when everyone else was doing the royal food, man, with the tasty, delicious royal foods, nice wine. They were odd. And what do you think about those other young men? They had to take note of those oddball Jewish kids. They were okay with that. As you follow the story of these four men through the book of Daniel, there were people around them that were always getting them in trouble because they were pointing out how these, these Hebrew young men weren't very good Babylonians. You shouldn't be a very good Babylonian. You should be a little odd. These guys acted differently than the culture they were a part of. They looked odd. The Babylonians didn't understand David, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They didn't know what they were doing. They couldn't understand why they prayed three times a day. The, 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 these Jewish boys weren't relevant. They weren't that clear. They were just odd. I think American Christians long too much to fit in. And I think it's killing us spiritually. Christian people in America long to belong and to look normal to others. We want to just be Americans with a little dash of Jesus. So many churches have prided themselves in being relevant to culture through trendy styles of worship and popular seeker-friendly therapeutic language incorporated into the worship space. Nothing's done in the worship space that you couldn't see on a stage somewhere else that's not Christian. This was sanctuary not too many years ago. But all the current research shows and I do read a lot of that. 
that if the church, if a church longs to fit in to the culture in which it belongs, if they try to eliminate any way in which it appears odd in the culture, it cannot sustain beliefs and practices that are uniquely Christian. It's precisely in our oddity that gives us safety. This is the very path that European churches began to take in the early 20th century. And if you go across Europe today, for the most part, the churches are both secularized and dead. This is at the heart of why I love the vision of sanctuary. We like odd. Especially the odd afforded us as we tether ourselves to the historical church. (laughs) I love it that we are evangelical, not in the political sense. But I love it that we love to see people have personal encounters with God. And that we love to see a faith that emerges in a way that changes the individual life. It's not just something we believe. It's something that transforms us. That's what the evangelical impulse is. I love that. It's apostolic. It's, it's historic. It's beautiful. I love that we're charismatic. We love ghost stories. Holy ghost stories. We love the power of the Spirit. We long for the gifts of the Spirit. We're still scratching it. How can we do that more? I love that. And I love that we're committed to the historical church. This is the part that makes most of us nervous. Let me unpack that just for a minute. You're aware that there are 42,000 denominations in the earth right now, Christian denominations, and hundreds of thousands of individual free churches that are too holy to belong even to a denomination. That's only been for the last 500 years. And if that seems like a long time, my wife... My wife's dad, Gil's dad, died at about 90. So all you have to do is stack about five of him and you're back to the Reformation. It's not that long ago. Before that, there was basically one church. I mean, there were some little expressions, but it was basically one church. Most of the post-Reformation Protestant churches are churches that have the foundation of the Bible only under the the banner of sola scriptura and having the Bible in tow, these churches definitely or generally ignore those who have gone before. Their practices, their rituals, their liturgies. Americans are moderns. And as moderns, we really don't care about the past. We are ahistorical without a past. One of our famous early writers is Ralph Waldo Emerson. He wrote, quote, I find that whatever is old corrupts, and the past turns to snakes. The reverence for the deeds of our ancestors is a treacherous sentiment, end quote. This gives you a snapshot of the early thinking of American people. We are under that culture. John L. O'Sullivan, he was an influential political writer for the Democratic Party in the middle middle 1800s. He wrote this, quote, Americans have no interest in the scenes of antiquity, only as lessons of avoidance of nearly all their examples. The expansive future is our arena and for our history. We are entering on its untrodden space with the truths of God in our mind, beneficent objects in our hearts, and with a clear conscience unsullied by the past. 
We are the nation of human progress. And who will, what can set limits to our onward march? Providence is with us and no earthly power can. We point to the everlasting truth on the first page of our national declaration and we proclaim to millions of other lands that the gates of hell, the powers of aristocracy and monarchy shall not prevail against it, end quote. Shazam. There ain't no past. We don't have a past. We just have scripture. See, the reformers said sola scriptura, which meant the scriptures are the most important. Alone give us the guide, and it's wonderful because that's true. But we turn sola scriptura to nuda scriptura, which means nakedly scripture. No interest in how it's ever been thought of, handled, or worked itself out in history. That's American Christianity that gets us into trouble. The historical church carries a stigma of irrelevance for most modern thinking people in America, but family dares gold in dem hills. From our place in history, as one wanders past the post-Reformation churches into the historical church, you run into just a few groups. There's only just a few groups that do that. One of the Roman Catholics, one of the Orthodox church. There's a Coptic church that kind of addresses those things, an Oriental church that's a little bit like that. And then the Anglican church. The Anglicans are my favorite because they're a tad Protestant. (laughs) And I like Protestantism a tad. John Wesley is the great revivalist of the 1700s. He was an Anglican priest. We like that. Anglicans embrace sola scriptura. Right, but also the creeds as part of their foundation and the sacraments. There's something that God acts physically in the world still. That when you do a baptism, there's something God acts in that. When you do Eucharist, there's something physical. You're doing this physical thing and God acts in it. He's doing stuff still physically in the world through the church. And then the episcopacy, that's this idea of order that that through God's clergy historically, that somehow there's a a way in which we rally the church and bring the church and help the church interpret the past. Well, Americans don't like clergy. Well, thank you for that. In my... (laughs) In my journey into the priesthood, I found a home in Anglicanism. The CEEC, which is the uh, uh, Community of Evangelical Episcopal Churches, which we voted, in case you didn't know, that we voted as a church back in 2016 to become part of, is rooted in Anglican spirituality. Early in our journey as a church, some thought we were dancing with Roman Catholicism. We weren't. We were beginning to swim in Anglican waters. In 2014, I was ordained a priest in the Anglican tradition. In 2018, here in Tulsa, I was consecrated as a bishop in the Anglican tradition. We are not confused about who we are. We are not an independent, charismatic church that can do whatever it wants to do. Shock, 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 shock. We are a charismatic Anglican church. That's the North Star we're moving towards. It may seem like we're wandering, making differences, but, but what may look like wandering back and forth is really us trying to be very sensitive to people's sensitivities. That's all it is. We just move forward. Ah, people freak out. We back up. 
It isn't like we're trying to, it's not like that. We know exactly where we're going. We're just seeing what you can bear. It's like Jesus told his disciples, I have much more to say to you, but you cannot bear it now. <laughs> Don't misunderstand. We have a North Star we're moving towards. And it's not somewhere behind us. We're not trying to be sanctuary 2009. Let me be clear to you as your bishop. When we're asked, what is our vision here? Or who are we? The simple answer is sanctuary is a charismatic Anglican church. And we are planning and working to flesh that out, what that means here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That makes us odd in a number of ways. Every once in a while, we, prepare, we appear in these dog collars. <laughs> we participate in the Anglican liturgy, which is so opaque sometimes. Most of our kids have only seen liturgy on display in cultish ways or mocking ways. We tried to, well, we are doing it just because we're forcing them. <laughs> On Wednesday nights, the kids do the daily office. We do the evening office. And the first few times we did it, they're looking at us, what are you doing? This is weird. We've never seen anything like this before. And I think, yeah, good. Because all they've seen, this is what they've seen in the culture. The only time people have seen anything that approaches liturgy is either something like, you know, I pledge allegiance to the flag. You know, they might have seen that kind of thing. But then the other thing is what happens in movies. This is out of, uh, um, uh, what is it, the... Um, Yes, Holy Grail with the Monty Python. So this is what they've seen. Go ahead and put that up there. That's who they think sanctuary is right there. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Just come to the word and table. We're all dressed up, doing these, this, we're listening to the Old Testament and the Psalms, not always clear what they're even about, but we just listen. Nobody explains it. And we do a psalm, bashing children's heads against the rocks. Nobody explains it. We just go, thank you, Lord. What is that? Not only are we fighting for the opacity and the oddness of the historical church, which we think tethers us to something more than emotions and lizard thinking. But we're fighting for the spirit. We're still trying to figure out how. I mean, you know, we're messing with this room. I do not like this room. Ever since I came, I just don't like it. And I can't figure out what's wrong. So now we've, we moved them over there, and now we moved them onto the floor. We might move them up there. I don't know what we're doing. <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're, uh, our, our facility doesn't have any theological architecture to it. I don't know what, it doesn't inspire awe. And, and, and I think we need more imagery here. In fact, I have just recently concluded that we need to bring some of those, you know, the screens we used to have in uh, Jenks, Oklahoma, Jenks, America. Remember those screens? How many remember those screens? Right, those screens were across, we had imagery on it. We need to get those screens again, some screens like that. So, I mean, I'll pay for it myself, but I would like you to help me pay for that. 
there's a lot of money. But we're going to mess with that. He said, well, what will happen after that? I don't know. We might hate it. I mean, one of our key values in sanctuary is try it. It might work. <laughs> and we need different kinds of services. We, need to have some, we want to have some services that are just oriented to the spirit. That we want to maybe do on a Sunday night once a quarter. I don't, we don't, we're trying to figure it out. Here's my point. Is I think we need lots of odd in order to survive Babylon. A strong case can be made that our accommodation to the culture in the U.S., in our churches, has made us more American, but has done very little to make those who attend her more Christian. Not all will agree with me, but I think we need odd. I think embracing odd will help your children live in Babylon. You have to decide whether that's true or not. This is what informs who we are. This is what informs where we are going. There is no confusion about it in our minds. I hope you continue with us on the journey. We really do have quite a way to go. I'm sure that makes you feel wonderful. Get out of your lizard brain. Let's stand.